Hello, I'm Harry. I'm Finn. I'm Ralph. And I'm Charlie. And we teamed up from our 4th year accounting class to tell you the story of the rise and fall of Bitcoin. We enjoyed making this and we hope you enjoy listening to it as well. Bitcoin was created in 2009 as a way for people to send money over the internet. At the start, it was worth $0. In 2011, a debate from Hacker News discussed whether Bitcoin was either going to save the world or was a stupid idea doomed to fail. In the same year, the currency hit $1. Bitcoin was believed to have been founded by Satoshi Nakamoto, whose identity has been a mystery ever since Bitcoin's release. He is kept anonymous as creators of alternative currencies are likely to attract the attention of authorities and criminals if his identity was to be revealed and to avoid the media. Nakamoto created a hugely popular coin with the goal of taking control of currency from financial elites and putting it in the hands of the average person. On April 23, 2011, he sent a farewell email to another Bitcoin developer saying, I've moved on to other things, later assuring that the future of Bitcoin was in good hands. He has not been heard of since. The cryptocurrency amassed a wide following that came with developers, miners, technology enthusiasts and many other groups. As a digital currency, that brought decentralization to the traditional financial system. Bitcoin was set to disrupt the, uh, the world for the first time. Bitcoin surged in popularity in 2017 when it railed $900 to almost $20,000 in less than a year. But it has become known as much for its plunges and for its rallies, and has seen it on several occasions. Another reason Bitcoin is immensely popular is in online exchange sites. Because Bitcoin is the first cryptocurrency that has been launched, it is accepted on most trading sites. Roger Keith Ver was an early investor in Bitcoin-related startups and an early promoter of Bitcoin. He invested over a million dollars into new Bitcoin-related st startups, including Ripple and Blockchain.com, BitPay and Kraken. He is believed to be worth around $430 million. In 2011, Ver's company Memory Dealers was the first to accept Bitcoin as a payment. He has been a prominent supporter of Bitcoin and saw Bitcoin to promote economic freedom. Cameron and Tyler Vinkelvoss are believed to be the first Bitcoin billionaires, reportedly holding 100,000 coins. Many other celebrities are connected with this cryptocurrency, some of them being 50 Cent, Paris Hilton, Gweth Paltrow, Bill Gates, Serena Williams, Floyd Mayweather, Kanye West and Mike Tyson. Bitcoin reached an all-time high of $64,863 on April 14, 2021. This was due to its growing adoption as a payment method. Bitcoin's price is just as likely to fall down as it is to continue climbing. The price swings are, go are going to keep happening, and experts say they are something long-term crypto investors will have to continue dealing with. Bitcoin's main source of profit is the accountancy side of cryptocurrency. The bookkeeping rules used by US companies make no specific reference to cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin. Under guidance from 2019 issued by the US accounting trade body, companies account for Bitcoin under rules for intangible assets such as intellectual property. Companies record the value of Bitcoin at the time of purchase in their accounts. If the price rises, they cannot log those gains until they sell. Yet if the value drops, the company must write down the value of their holdings as an impairment charge. Bitcoin crashed in 2018 with the value falling to $3,000 compared to $20,000 the previous year. It crashed for several distinct reasons. Wall Street regulators announced a series of actions including levying fines against companies involved with cryptocurrencies. Cryptocurrency prices plummeted in 2018 because of regulatory crackdowns and uncertainty. Many other cryptocurrencies currencies crashed in 2018 with their values dropping anywhere between 80 to 95 percent. 
Bitcoin crash also came around the time when cryptocurrency exchanges were banned in China and when Bitcoin clamped down on Bitcoin mining operations. Bitcoin mining is the process of creating new Bitcoins by solving extremely complicated math problems that verify transactions in the currency. Bitcoin is currently at a price of 47,000 US dollars. Due to the rise of other cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin's price has dropped a significant amount compared to its peak on the 16th of April 2021 at the price of 63,000 US dollars. Some examples of these other cryptocurrencies are Ethereum, Tether, and XRP. These cryptocurrencies became a big threat to Bitcoin as a lot of investors of Bitcoin put a blind eye to it and focused on the new high grossing ones. The entire cryptocurrency market is now worth over 700 billion, about 2,200 per person in the US, with much of this value belonging to just a few financial organizations. Despite a growing number of digital coins on the marketplace, Bitcoin faces the most serious competition from Ethereum, Bitcoin Cash and Ripple. In today's market, one Ether equates to $3,000 and one Bitcoin Cash equates to 500 Personally, I would not invest in this currency. There is no guarantee that a crypto project you invest in will succeed. Competition is fierce among thousands of blockchain projects and projects that are no more than scams are also prevalent in the crypto industry. Only a small number of cryptocurrency projects will flourish Regulators may also crack down on the entire crypto industry, especially if governments begin to strongly view cryptocurrencies as a threat rather than just innovative technology. Thank you for listening into our show. We hope you learned a lot about Bitcoin and where it will be in the future. This is 4.3 Accounting. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. This show is brought to you by Amber Eyewear, BlackRock. The leading specialist for blue light glasses for healthier eyes, ambereyewear.com or in store in Blackrock Shopping Centre. For our segment on 4.2 Accounting Show, we have chosen to speak about the up and coming industry of gaming and YouTube. You can see all around the world that this industry is becoming bigger and bigger, with tens of millions of players watching their favourite creators play a fun game or professional players who spent a lot of hours dedicating themselves to working on their playing skills play off against one another for a rather big cash prize. As of 2020, YouTube has a staggering 2.3 billion users compared to 800 million in 2012. YouTuber users watch an average of 1 billion hours of content every day, racking up a revenue of 20 billion in 2020 compared to 0.8 billion in 2010. On the gaming side, Twitch, one of the most popular gaming platforms, earned 2.3 billion in revenue and their users consumed 18.6 billion hours of content in 2020. Callum will be discussing why we picked this industry and in esports, while Ushin will be discussing how YouTubers actually make money. In the modern world, social media has been an important aspect of life for the most people. This being building the confidence of teenagers and spying millions of people, YouTubers impact us in many ways. YouTube and gaming have been a large platform to start a living of and make a substantial income. We have thought of YouTube as not just a company that provides funny videos online, but for job opportunities. As we are people that watch this content on YouTube, we thought it would be a good idea to pursue this area and relate to it. Influencers are thriving in the modern world and leading to more job opportunities and employment. The average person that watches content on YouTube look up to these people who are making millions just from clicking, people clicking on their videos. 
Oshin will be going into detail and helping you understand the significance of the amount of money they make. Gaming is the reason, other reason why we picked, decided to pick this topic. As we know, YouTube holds a big platform for gaming, but not the only one. There are many other platforms that produces the same type of content and converts the concept of gaming for fun to a competitive side of the industry, which is where many people succeed. The prize pool for the winners of the competition is huge. Esports is the biggest competitive gaming com company with a global esports market of over $1 billion. The reason we picked the gaming industry is mainly because most teenagers or people our age can relate to gaming as many people own some type of console in the past year or so gaming has made a noticeably big impact on our social lives. Especially being a teenager was the only way you could interact with your friends besides other the phone or than the phone. Focusing on topic of gaming, it gives us a better insight on what is going on behind the screen. Along with the increase in popularity of YouTube and video sharing platforms as source of income, the interest in the esports industry is also rising. Esports are essentially the best of the best players in the world at video gaming, competing against each other for the large pile. Here, can I start that? Yeah, just go from, yeah. Just go from like the esports button. Yeah. Three, Al two, one. Along with the increase in popularity of YouTube and video sharing platforms as such source of income, the interest in the esports industry is also rising. Esports are essentially the best of the best players in the world at a video game comp competing against each other for a large pool prize. These competitions slash tournaments are very competitive and intriguing for fans to watch. Cheering and supporting their favourite players to win, many competitors would have a large audience from their Twitch or YouTube channels which attracts more viewers and publicity. The prize pool of these tournaments are quite generous with sponsorships from brands and large funding. There could be millions of dollars won in some of the most popular tournaments. For example, in 2021, the most recent Dota 2 tournament, there was just over $40 million prize pool for a single tournament. Winning one of these, even finishing top 10, could be a life-changing amount of money from a single tournament. Obviously, if you have the skill to compete in esports, it is certainly a career option which plays well. Also, it is much more entertaining than most jobs as you are p playing, practicing a game you enjoy a lot and it will be less hours of stressful work. YouTube is one of the most popular websites ever. Owned by Google since October 2006, YouTube has thousands of content creators who all create different types of videos, from reading the longest word in the English language or reacting to a music video. YouTube, like most other free apps slash sites, make their money from advertisements. The YouTube video is often started with an ad or two, and this is how they make their money. RPM. Revenue per milli is a metric that represents how much money you've earned per thousand video views. RPM is based on several revenue sources, including ads, channel memberships, YouTube premium revenue, super chat, and super stickers. CPM. The cost an advertisement pays per thousand ad impressions. An ad impression is counted any time an ad is displayed. Channel memberships. People can subscribe to a channel for free, but also can earn exclusive rewards for a channel if they pay their membership. Sponsorship. Many YouTubers get a video or series they have sponsored and are paid by the advertiser. 
this is a win-win for both sides as the marketing gets the companies more sales and the YouTubers receive more money from the company. Now you may be thinking, well, surely this couldn't be a full-time job or that they don't get paid a lot. Well, you could be quite wrong. YouTubers with a million subscribers would average 60,000 euros a year from YouTube alone. They could also be earning in and around 12,000 euros per sponsored video. To, to conclude, don't be thinking that YouTube is a waste of a career to pursue. Because if the person works hard and long enough, it's easier than a lot of jobs and can pay better. Ladies and gentlemen, we have spoken to you on the up and coming YouTube and gaming industry. We've clearly shown how a career in this industry takes hard work and determination. However, it is very rewarding in today's world. To recap, Oshin has explained the finances involved in pursuing a career in this industry. Ocam explained the gaming professional side and why we chose this topic. We mainly chose this topic to educate adults about the pros and cons of this industry. That if your child ever wanted to pursue a career as an influ influencer or YouTuber online, instead of a traditional job, that it wouldn't be a bad career path and that you should support their decision. Thank you. This show is brought to you by Amber Eyewear, BlackRock, the leading specialist for blue light glasses for healthier eyes, ambereyewear.com or in store in BlackRock Shopping Centre. Hi, this is the BCR 4-3 Accounting Show. I'm Gavin. And I'm Maddie. And I'm Keen. Today, we are with Jim Murphy, president of BlackRock College Conference of St. Vincent de Paul. The connection between BlackRock College and St. Vincent de Paul goes back to many years when the SVP Christmas Appeal is a major event in the college. We are really looking forward to exploring that today. So firstly, what inspired you What inspired you to get involved in St. Vincent de Paul? Uh, Gavin, thank you for the question. Yeah, um, it was basically through the college union. Um, I left school here uh, a long, long time ago, 1972. Um, and when I left, I'd been a boarder for five years. And I had really no connection with the college for the next uh 20 years or so um in those days it was only a 21 year reunion they didn't do 10 year reunions as they do now i played in a golf outing um guy said to me sure would i come and join a committee or whatever it was at the time and um i met some vincent de paul team through the college union and there was people like jerry mcveigh and alan lennox are still around and um they just go up to Tala with some of the boys from here and do various things. And um, I said, okay, um, I started to give a hand and um, that's how I got involved in it really, just on a very practical level, just going up on Wednesdays and bringing some of the boys from here up to Tala, which they used to visit at the time. So it wasn't a kind of a St. Paul um, a conversion or anything like that. It was just a, a practical way of giving a hand, so that was it, yeah. And could you tell us a little bit about your role in St. Vincent yeah. de Paul today? Thanks, Matty, yeah. I'm um, I'm the president of the Vincent de Paul Conference. Now, that sounds grandiose. Um, there's a Vincent de Paul organisation everywhere. It's broken up into little small units called conferences, and uh, they operate in locations like this. One in Booterstown, there's one in Black Rock, there's ones in Dunleary, Fox Rock, just in the local bases. And um, everyone has their own members and they have a president and they collect money at local church gates and uh, spend that money in the local area looking after the needy. 
So the president is um, is one who really kind of makes sure with his team that things are getting done, and um, that all the, we're all workers on the ground. It's there isn't any sort of a huge status to it, but it's um, it's uh, something we get involved in. So that's that's what the president is about, really. Yeah. yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about the connection with Backrock College and Saint Vincent de Paul and the origin of this? Yeah, in um, Kean, in in it goes right back to um, nineteen hundred and one, uh, when the college would have been about forty years old at the time, and there was a there was formed here, um, called the Holy Ghost Conference of Vincent de Paul, and it worked under the umbrella of the Black Rock parish and Buddhistown parishes at the time um, the main trust of the society was visitations and the boys who were in the college in those days used to go out to hospitals uh, visit people there and then try and come back to the parishes and tell them that the boy that the people or the patients when they're coming home would need a certain type of rehab um, and of course they were coming home to some appalling conditions um, so that led the boys to get more involved in the local societies and get more help for the people. Um, so that was the origins of it going back 100 years. And then I suppose in the last 40 to 50 years, um, we have forged a link with Killinarden out in Talla, uh, which was only built in the 1960s and 70s. And... Um, so that's where we we're we're our link is with them then you know so they we go back a hundred years but uh we're we're involved we started in the black rock Buddhistown area but now we our wings have spread way out to tala and beyond so that's that's that in transition here we have the soccer marathon and the selling of the christmas trees in aid of saint vincent paul how significant of a fundraiser is this for saint vincent de paul Oh yeah, it's it's huge, um, Gavin. Um, the Christmas trees alone brings in about seventy percent of the total income of the of the conference here in Black Rock. Um, the other areas that uh, the soccer marathon is the transition years project. Um, as you both all know, then the sixth years do a fast. The fifth years have the cycle time. There's duck races and quizzes, uh, and they bring in the balance of those funds. Um, but the transition year um, involvement and participation is massive because they, they do all the work at the Christmas trees. And then as well, they have their, um, their fundraiser with the um, activity on the soccer marathon, which I think is coming up in this first week in December, is it? I think, yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, and are you getting the bubbles again this year? Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, probably. Yeah. Uh, good, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's it's 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 the most the transition year, um, initiatives would bring in um, the, the well into sort of seventy eighty percent of the funds. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, could you tell our listeners about the impact of? fundraising in Blackrock College and the kind of program it supports? Yeah, uh, I can, Matty, yeah. Um, the fundraising, uh, the impact of the fundraising, sorry, and the programs it supports, well, we provide grants for third-level students 
um, which I'll come to just come back to in a minute. We obviously that money is used to supply the hampers, which uh, over 220 hampers will be distributed to the families in Killinarden um, on the 18th of December, um, which is a marvelous initiative. Again, transition year plus their parents, and um, it's it's very worthwhile activity then the we're involved issue with the holy Far, holy family primary school up in um this was helping to them to put in an outdoor classroom like an outdoor garden and we we, we use some funds to clear the area and to put in beds um then we run some after school programs like drama and music with a sister Mairead up in up in Tala. um obviously the boys and girls up there if they want to do drama or music, um, they're not really going to have the funds or their parents aren't going to have the funds to support that. So they, they have to be um have to be funded somewhere or other. So we contribute to that. But the um the big the big um uh, outgoing in terms of cash out is the um the level of third le- the, the grants for third level students. And um that's what what that is it's about 300 euros a month uh, for 10 months of the year and we prove that that covers um bus fares uh, some meals maybe books and and um any other sundry expenditure the boys might have or the girls might have going to college and um just with that alone i just we we have a process where people apply for that grant and then we consider it a group of us within the Vincent de Paul, and then we say whether they're eligible. Whether, generally speaking, they they're all eligible and they get the funds. But I just read a letter from a boy this year in second year in Tala, and um, he was applying for his grant. And I just read it. Um, he said, "I'd like to apply to the Saint Vincent de Paul." scholarship scheme for this academic year i'm honored to be even in a position to be considered for this scholarship being considered for this scholarship means an awful lot to me and my family for many reasons first of all i have to work a full-time job while being in college just to survive as my mother is a single parent and works a minimum wage job i give my mother half of my wages every week for upkeep of the house such as shopping and bills and the other half of my wages are spent on college, such as lunches, books, etc. I'm going into second year of my four-year course. Last year was a lot easier to balance my financial difficulties, as all my modules were online due to COVID. This meant I didn't have to pay for transport to and from college, lunches in the college, or books, as all the material was online. This year was completely different, as I feel uh, as though the constant financial worry could be detrimental to my mental health as well as my ability to give college my all. Unfortunately, I am currently the first person out of my family to be in college. This would this has put a spotlight on me and I feel as though there's a constant burden on me to succeed. Receiving the scholarship would mean the absolute word to me and my family and as it would mitigate our financial struggles. So that's coming in from somebody there who um, is motivated to get on in college motivated to represent his family well and um just thanking us for considering it and uh obviously um he was a 
a worthy beneficiary. So we have 22 students on our books at the moment, ranging from all different types of, um, of courses, from business to nursing to forensics, and all that kind of stuff. So it's um, that's where that's where. Sorry, Matty, it's gone on a bit, but uh, it's um, just had felt that letter was worth reading, and uh, so. Would you be able to tell us about the business model that the Christmas tree program runs under? Yeah, well, um, I don't have the exact we call name for the model, Kian, but I suppose in some ways what attracts people into Black Rock um, to get their Christmas trees is, I suppose, two things. It's the brand of Black Rock College. People know that they're going to get something good. And then St. Vincent de Paul is a very strong brand as regards charities. People will will they, they associate with Vincent de Paul and they say that's a worthy charity and they decide. So the model that we work here is that we have a producer of Christmas trees, Peter, Peter Porter is down in Wicklow. He's been supplying the trees for 25 years to us. Um, and he then puts in a small team of, of we call um, skilled people, like who can work the saws and do all of that work. And then the transition year boys come in and they help the, to pick the trees, pack the trees. And, um, and the, the, they're managed by a past pupil uh, who will be Harry Donnelly this year. And um, he's taken over from a guy, David Murphy, who worked on the project for the last 10 years. And so everyone is rotted in. Um, they, they, they're working at it. Um, so I suppose in terms of a straight business model, we try and sell as many trees as we can. And um, the overheads of the operation are very low. Um, and Peter Porter, he charges the, um, the net margin or the net cost of the trees. So there's a very good amount of money going back to the Vincent de Paul here. And, um, and that helps us then to do the projects I mentioned here. In the previous in the previous question from um, from Matty, so um, it's it's a pro it's a model that works extremely well. It's a partnership to some extent between the producer and we are the we're the we're the conduit to the people who are going to to buy the trees, and we have the ideal location out there. We have space, we have car parking, and um, we have boys who are willing to help. For the period during their transition year so it's a uh, it's worked well um it's given us a lot of a lot of a lot of pluses and uh if it ain't broken then um, we'll keep moving on with it you know so could you tell us a little bit about the challenges COVID 19 presented for the work of saint vincent paul in general but specifically the various fundraising initiatives in the college yeah um yeah gavin i thought the um funny enough if i was sitting here this time last year with you i would have might have felt that because of COVID and people reluctance to come out and mingle or whatever they, we might have suffered a bit but i think you know you'd know from your own business um uh research and that that there was what they call the COVID bounce in charities um a lot of charities last year did quite well and uh, we 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 benefited from that. Um, all the initiatives uh, in the college here, if you took the turnover or the revenues that were collected in twenty nineteen, 
and take the initiatives that were done in 2020, uh, the figures were, were way higher. And just people, I think, maybe had some spare money uh, and they weren't going out as much and uh, it, it found its way back here, you know. Um, so that, that's the fundraising activities, the initiatives were good. The challenges of COVID for the work of VDP have been very tough. I, we, we have a visitation program in Tala, which we visit uh, maybe 60, 70 families a week um, with, in conjunction with, with a conference out in Tala. Um, so that social interaction has stopped. Those visits have stopped since March 2020. And um, the visitation goes to people, has a chat, generally gives them some money for their short of something. Um, but a lot of people look at that just as a, from the, they just like the interaction of somebody calling to their door uh, on a weekly basis. And uh, that's, that's all been missed. But, you know, it's hopefully getting back in the next while. And... Um, Everything else has been obviously a challenge. You see it here in the school. Um, but like we dodged a bullet last year, the school got was open. We were able to um, sell the Christmas trees. I think if the school had been closed, a lot of people wouldn't have been coming through the school. We'd have had difficulty getting as much turnover as we got. So I suppose the likes of Fintan O'Connor and the maintenance people, they're the real unsung heroes around here and uh, they get everything ready for class keep the place safe and keep the place open you know and um so they're the so they're the challenges that you all have you know the the people who are um keeping the place right but uh it's um so they're the various challenges still are and hopefully we'll get out of all of this the next year or so because if we don't we'll just have to operate within it but we're we're getting there uh, would you be able to share with us some of your proudest moments of working in SVP? Yeah, uh, good question, Matty. Um, I think anything we do is generally a proud moment. You know, I think that if you can feel you'd make it as, even the smallest difference to somebody, um, it helps. And uh, the letter I read earlier there, um, you know, it's it's very moving. Um, we've been able to help that person, and you'll find that probably you know in a year's or two three years time he'll be working somewhere again and you know he'll come back and he'll tell us what he's doing and his letters so like that that's a proud thing to do um i think one of the you know i could go on and on about different cases but there was a man who was a refugee here and um he i don't know how i didn't know anything about his background other than he was a refugee and he was living in this awful term direct provision out in Clondalkin, which is a, a facility for refugees, and he polio as well. He was from Nigeria, so he polio was a, a disease when when I was a young fellow, it had nearly been conquered, but it was a, a deformity of your legs, and you, you know a lot of people ended up being crippled, as they said, and ended up in wheelchairs. But with vaccines and that, it was gone. But anyway, this this uh, this man, and he used to have to get himself. He got into Belfield to do computer programming and um, he used to get himself from Clondalk and two buses every day uh, to Belfield um, and then um, he he was getting there and then he did an internship in 
um, a company, but we managed to lever our connections to the BlackRock Union. It's like not all of this is about money. We just have uh, we we'd have we'd we'd know people because of BlackRock College. We'd know people in all different places, and they're at a good level. They're at a decision making level. So we got them into work as an internship in this multinational software company, and they got came back to me and said, "I just couldn't believe that this man was." Like the nearly the equivalent of a Bill Gates to some extent, he was just an absolute genius. And um, so once he qualified, they, they, and they actually built, they had some sort of um, problem in accessing the building um, because of the wheelchair, and they actually built a ramps and got it in, and you know they just wanted this man so much, you know. So that was very proud thing to be able to feel we were all part of it not just Vincent DePaul but the um, the union the connections we all had so the team you could say got him there and there's several other incidences I'd imagine but look it's uh you guys need to get home <laughs> so anyway so what's your experience at St. Vincent DePaul as well as running the Christmas tree program been like well it's a uh, I have, you know, I think it's been a great journey. Um, I think that we're providing a connectivity um, between all those who are better off. I suppose we have to look at it that way. We're we're all here in this school. Um, we'd be part of middle class Dublin, and we're helping those who are less well off than ourselves, which I think is, um, you know, a great thing to do i think it was uh kennedy who um who paraphrased the the the, the biblical expression to say to, 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 to that to whom much is given much is expected and i think if um you know it's a, it's something that we all can live out um if we sort of say you know some days you might say oh that's terrible what happened to me, but one of the great truisms of life is always somebody much worse off than yourself. So I think that the uh, the experience of us running the Christmas tree project, it's really the end result of that, where it's ending up, is um, has been a, a brief and a long may it continue. Yeah. What do you hope to achieve in the future with Blackrock College and St. Vincent de Paul? Yeah, well, I suppose it goes back to, oh, the the priests, which have got far less. When I was here in the college, there must have been probably 60, 70 priests. I mean, now there's probably six or seven, I think, or probably less. Um, but the message that you're at the ethos of this school and has been, you know, uh, going on for years, um, that it's trying to say that all men are born equal really and um, that the practical thing to try and do is to encourage everyone to help out. Um, I often keep an image in my own mind um, of the famous parable of the Good Samaritan um, and he sees the guy on the side of the road and uh, he probably has two thoughts in his head. One is to say to himself, well, what will happen to me if I, say, get down off my horse or whatever and help him? 
and because I'm outside my comfort zone and I mightn't just you know this man might might attack me or something like that but then his next thought and this is why he acted is to say what will happen him if I don't and I think that that is the key to the thing that we have to say to ourselves we have to uh, help uh, people and um, we have to see that um, that there are people worse off than ourselves and that it's our duty to some extent as best we can within our own uh, limitations and constraints to try and help these people and one thing we can do here is through the VDP and all those uh, initiatives I mentioned to you before that's to some extent our call to action and that's what I'd like to try and keep that spirit going uh, in the BlackRock Union the BlackRock VDP and to some extent you, you're getting it as well through BlackRock College so that's where uh, I would hope to feel that we'll be if I was sitting here again in uh, 30 years time that we would be repeating the same type of questions and the same type of answers so that'll be it yeah. Thank you very much, Mr. Murphy, for taking time out of your day to answer our questions. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening to the interview. Yeah, thank you, Gavin and Kean and Matty, for um, for dressing up in your blazers and everything for me. And uh, been an absolute pleasure to and thank the technical team. And uh, wish you the best with this lovely initiative. Well done to you guys. And this show is brought to you by our proud sponsor, BlackRock College Christmas Trees, in aid of St. Vincent de Paul. If you are interested in buying a Christmas tree, please find more information at blackrockchristmastrees.com. Thank you. Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Tom Grant and today myself, Daniel Callahan, Paddy Buckley and Callum McLean will be talking about how COVID-19 has affected Premier League clubs financially. COVID-19 has no doubt negatively in impacted football clubs all over the world financially. This impact has obviously resulted in reduced spending for clubs in the transfer window. In comparison to summer 2019, the drop observed during the last transfer window for the five European Championships was 43%, with a minimum fall in England of 10% and a maximum of Spain in 75%. As a result of this, the value of players has decreased. In the top 10 leagues, there is a decrease in player value of 18% on average. However, top players like Kylian Mbappe, Mohamed Salah and Neymar are retaining their value to a greater extent than others and are seeing a decrease of around 13% to their values. The financial impact of COVID-19 has caused super clubs to lose vast amounts of money and they have looked for alternative ways to recoup some of that lost revenue. They came up with a solution for their money problem with the European Super League. The European Super League was a plan concocted by Real Madrid president Florentino Perez in 2018 and has been in the works since then. The idea is that a league of the top 20 teams across Europe would be created, they would compete against each other and then they would leave both their domestic leagues and cups and also the other European competitions, the Europa League and the Champions League. Those 20 clubs would never be relegated and no team would ever be promoted. The plans weren't supposed to be presented for another few years but the Super League was fast-tracked because of the financial impacts of COVID-19 on the clubs, and they decided to tell the public on the 18th of April, 2021.
The idea was met with a scathing response by fans and pundits across the globe. They felt that the European clubs were trying to leech off the war chest of riches the Premier League produces each year, after years of irresponsible spending. Although the Super League would have been hugely financial, financially beneficial for the teams in the Super League, it would have been awful for all the other teams as there would be less attraction to all other leagues. Competitions like the Europa League and the Champions League would be tainted as none of the top teams would be in these competitions. Also, the fact that there would be no promotion or relegation to this league would mean that there wouldn't be as much to play for and therefore it wouldn't be as entertaining for fans. The Super League really conveys the battle between fans and rich owners who just want to make money and who don't care about the fans. A major impact of COVID on professional football is the loss of fans at, at games. The top 20 clubs in Europe have seen their combined revenue drop by 12% last season. It dropped massively from 9.3 billion to 8.2 billion due to only to the loss of fans alone. The Premier League were hit the hardest out of a major league since the pandemic started. Manchester United and Manchester United's last quarterly financial results released on Friday, which are the club's debt rising 16% to 455 million. The increase is largely explained by their match day revenue dropping to just 1.5 million for the months of October, November and December, down 95.5% compared to last year when it stood at 33 million. The financial lows that COVID-19 has caused many clubs to get rid of staff. A great example of this is Arsenal, who had, let, had to let many staff go, including their mascot. They fired 55 staff, including, total, including their head scout. This caused huge uproar due to the fact that players like William and Sub Aubameyang on multiple hundreds of thousands of week, times a week. Nonetheless, this clearly conveys the devastating impact that COVID has had on all football clubs, not just the clubs in the lower tiers of football pyramid. This is a minor impact compared to the millions of money that clubs have lost. However, many employees within football clubs have lost since COVID begun and caused many to go on furlough leave. Overall, COVID has impacted everyone involved massively and caused huge financial damage, but things are starting to return to normal. Thanks for listening. And this show is brought to you by our proud sponsor, Blackrock College Christmas Trees in Aid of St. Vincent de Paul. If you are interested in buying a Christmas tree, please find more information at blackrockchristmastrees.com. Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in to today's show with myself, Max Granfield, David Boland and Adam Golden. Today we will be discussing the topic of spending of Premier League clubs compared to a bottom of the table team and how spending changes over time and what causes it. We will be using Manchester United, Liverpool and Newcastle as our examples by comparing their spending since the Premier League began. Money has always been involved with football ever since the Premier League began and we'll show you how an increase in revenue, revenue for the Premier League clubs has led to a highly inflated transfer market. But why can they spend so much money on players? The first reason is TV rights. In 2012, TV rights were sold for $3 billion. In 2015, the Premier League signed a deal with $5.14 billion. This was followed by a £4.5 billion deal in 2019 by Sky Sports and BT Sports be able to broadcast Premier League games. The rise in TV rights has had a massive impact on what clubs can spend on players leading to an inflated market. The next main reason is why they can spend so much money is their owners. 
club, clubs like Man City and Chelsea have had some of the richest owners in the world. These owners pump money into their clubs and are willing to spend infinitely to win trophies. In conclusion, the increase of TV rights means that clubs can spend more money on players and facilities. To show the inflation of teams' transfer budgets, an example of this would be in 1993, Man United bought Roy Keane for £3.75 million. And this was a top signing of a football player at the time. Compared to the top signing of a football player in the Premier League now is Jack Grealish for £100 million. As you can see, there is a substantial difference between the top signing versus now and then. Uh, the first club we're going to talk about is Man United. Since the 15-16 season, United have spent £972 million. Their, their biggest arrivals have been Paul Pogba, Lukaku and Maguire. In terms of departures, they've received £320 million. Their biggest departure being Angel Di Maria, Romelu Lukaku and Henrik Mkhitaryan. This puts them at a negative transfer flow of £653 million. The next club we'll talk about is Liverpool. Since the 15-16 season, Liverpool have spent £625 million. Their biggest signing being Virgil van Dijk, Alisson and Naby Keita. In departures since the 15-16 season, they've received £450 million. Their biggest money makers being Philippe Coutinho, Sterling and Christian Benteke. This puts them in a negative transfer flow of £176 million. The last goal we'll be talking about will be Newcastle United. Since the 15-16 season, uh, Newcastle United have spent around £377 million. Pounds. Their biggest arrival being Joe Linton, Joe Willock and Miguel Amaran. On the other side of things, since the 15-16 season, Newcastle have brought in £193 million in departures. Their biggest departures from the club being Sissoko, Perez and Juan Alden. But, uh, but we think if you read it this in five years, it will be very difficult and it will look uh, a lot more like the, like the Manchester United budget as Newcastle have just been taken over new owners. On October 8th, Mike Ashley sold Newcastle United for £300 million to a consortium led by the Saudi Arabian Sovereign Wealth Fund. In an instant, it became the richest club in the world. So as you see, Man United have spent the most amount of money. For our segment on the 4-2 accounting show, we have chosen to speak about the history and the financial situation of Barcelona FC. Barcelona FC were founded in 1899 by a group of Swiss... Uh, by a, by a group of Swiss, English, German and Spanish footballers led by Jean Gamper. Their cl- by a group of Swiss, English, German and Spanish footballers led by Jean Gamper. The club played amateur football until 1910 in various regional competitions. In 19... 19- <laughs> the club played amateur football until 1910 in various regional competitions. In 1928, Barcelona co-founded La Liga the top tier in Spanish football, along with a string of other clubs. And to date, the Catalan club has never been raided from, relegated from La Liga. The club is owned by its members. FC Barcelona is one of the few clubs in the world to be owned. Uh, <laughs> FC Barcelona is one of the few clubs in the world to be owned uh, by the club members themselves. Together, these members form the governing body of the club, and in 2016, there were an estimated 140,000 members. In the club's decorated trophy cabinet, they have won 95 trophies, including five Champions Leagues, 26 La Liga titles, and 31 Copa del Rey. Uh, Messi first joined Barca at age 13, and at 17 became the youngest goal scorer in La Liga history. Since then, he has won six Ballon d'Ors, 22 La Liga Golden Boots, 
and 10 La Liga titles, uh, four Champions Leagues, three club World Cups, along with a long list of individual records, such as the most goals scored in the calendar year, which he broke in 2012 at 91. Messi's first official wage was signed in 2000, and it was worth 600 euros. When he left Barcelona in 2021, his reported salary was a basic wage of 1.36 million euro a week. Annually, this costs Barcelona 70.7 million euros on Messi alone. Two million Messi shirts are sold every year, making Barcelona 40 million euro on shirt sales for one player. On shirt sales for one player. Attracting and buying players such as Suarez, Neymar, Coutinho and Griezmann has never been a problem for them. And since 2015, they've spent 954 million euro on just 27 players. Overpaying on the wrong players has led to the financial crisis they now find themselves in. Before the pandemic, Barcelona became the first club in any sport ever to surface 1 million annual revenues. Now its growth set debt is about 1.4 million much maturity. The pandemic hurt Barcelona, but it wasn't the main reason why this happened. Ever since the night in Berlin in June 2015, when the club won its fourth Champions League final in 10 years, Barcelona has had it out. The club had achieved dominance on the cheap thanks to a one-off generation of brilliant footballers from its own youth academy. Back then, Barca could afford to sign almost anybody in football, in any talent business. The most important management decision is recruiting. Business, the most important management decision is recruiting. But Barcelona lost the war for talent. What went wrong? The man overseeing Barcelona's uh, disastrous transfer policy between 2014 and 2020 was Joseph Mario Bartomeu. In January 2014, he went from obscure Barca vice president to accidental president when Sandra Rosso stepped down. Bartomeu was considered a caretaker. However, in July 2015, a month after the Champions League final, grateful club members gave him a landslide victory in Barca's presidential election. The problem was that he knew little about either football or the football business. His sporting director, the legendary Spanish goalkeeper Andoni Zubizarreta, had signed many players like, Bar like Neymar and Luis Suarez who gelled with Messi into the MSN attack, the best in football. But Bartomeu soon sacked Azubi. In all, the president had five sporting directors in six years. Barcelona's descent began with the loss of Neymar. This is a big loss for Barcelona, but the reason Neymar left because he wants to be like Messi, the main man of his team. In 2017, he joined Barca, Paris Saint-Germain for a transfer fee of 220 million, a world record. Unfortunately, Barcelona never managed to replace him. <laughs> So after Neymar's de departure, Barcelona spent about 110 million uh, on the French youngster Ousmane Dembele from Borussia Dortmund. Less than six months later, Barca paid Liverpool's 160 million with former Liverpool star Philip Coutinho. Neymar's transfer fee had been low enough. Both Coutinho and Dembele were considered flops at Barcelona. In 2019, Barcelona spent 120 million on French striker Antoine Griezmann. It was a record fee for a footballer older than 20 at the end of the age of 25. Once again, Griezmann didn't succeed as he would like as he would like to at Barcelona. These transfers were examples of how much Barcelona spent on players to replace Neymar that didn't pay off. FC Barcelona, like millions of employees and companies around the world, suffered massive losses as a result of the COVID nineteen pandemic. In their end of year financial ana analysis, the club reported a net loss of ninety seven million in the two thousand nineteen twenty season. The club attributes much of that to the loss of a proper match day experience. The club pulled in revenues of hundred and sixty two million euros from the stadium and the other venue operations. This is 24% less than the revenues from, from the season before. Ad additionally, around 240 million euros of revenue came from broadcasting rights for Barcelona games. This resemb resembles a 35 million euro decrease from the 2018-19 season. 
Despite Tilda Avenue's approaching 855 million euros, the club was at 1.47 million euros in revenue. The club came up 18% short in their revenues. I believe the two big reasons that I've outlined here for Barcelona is in this situation is because they've had a negative transfer flow in the past five years from overspending on transfers and failed to replace Neymar and effect to COVID-19 vaccines. During summer 2021, Messi's contract with Barcelona expired. And after more than 21 years at the club, Barcelona announced that Lionel Messi was leaving the club due to quote-unquote financial and structural obstacles. This news shocked many, and even Messi was emotional leaving the club. After 778 appearances and 672 goals since joining the club in 2003, it was finally the end of Messi's time at the club, and it was the end of an era. The reason why Messi couldn't stay at Barcelona was because of Barcelona's ever-growing shortage of income. Messi was willing to take a 50% wage cut, but the La Liga rules made it financially impossible to keep Messi, even with this wage cut. In 2013, La Liga introduced a rule that limited the amount all clubs in the league could spend in salaries to 70% of total club revenue per year. For example, if Barcelona got 700 million in revenue for one year, then the maximum amount of money they could spend on salaries is 490 million during that year. Due to COVID-19, the football club's revenue was greatly down. During the 2020-2021 season alone, Barcelona lost 481 million. Additionally, during the season, TV revenue was down by 14% due to the club's early elimination from the Champions League, and commercial revenue was down 10% due to the closure of the club's stores. Another reason why the club lost so much money during COVID-19 was because they couldn't have fans at the stadiums watching their games. Prices for tickets to matches at Camp Nou start at around €100 Euro and can go up to €350. Euro. If Camp Nou was at its full capacity of 100,000 seats and all fans were paying at least €100 Euro for a ticket, they'd be making over €10 million in revenue per game. With the club playing at least... 30 games per year at home, they could be making more than 300 million in revenue from ticket sales per year. With thousands going on stadium tours, this would also be a great source of income for the club. However, with COVID, these huge sources of income were put on a standstill with the club not able to hold fans for months upon end. With their already bad financial problems before COVID-19, the pandemic was the final nail in the coffin for the once mighty club. The club would have had to cut its wages by 200 million just to keep Messi signed. With a limited amount of transfer activity taking place, Barcelona was nowhere near to that figure. And so on August 5th, the breaking news that Lionel Messi was leaving Barcelona was confirmed. Before Messi's contract had expired, he was earning over 100 million a year. And with Barcelona over 1 billion in debt, it would have been impossible for the club to fit his salary in its player budget limit for the upcoming season. We can see that the idea of a salary cap in La Liga is considered a good one because it makes sure that clubs aren't spending an excessive amount of money which can leave them in debt. But there is a, can be a few negatives to the salary cap. During the pandemic, both big clubs, Barcelona and Real Madrid, suffered as they were get, weren't getting much revenue when there were no fans in the stadiums. This led to them having a reduced salary cap and they had to sell some of their players to stick to that cap. Now, we, we, can, we now can see how the salary cap and COVID-19 impacted Barcelona so much. Thanks a lot for listening, and we hope you have enjoyed our analysis of Barcelona.
fight him prone for people's own. But it's my home, all I have known. Where I got thrown, but now it's gone. Out of the darkness, in came the carnage. Threatening my very survival. Fractured my streets and broke all my dreams. Now feels like defeat, a wretched retreat. So we struggle fighting to eat. And we wonder Cannot wait for some fateful day. It's too far away. So right now I say, when I get older, I will be stronger. They'll call me freedom, just like the waving flag. And then it goes back, and then it goes back, and then it goes back. Whoa. So many wars settled in stores. All that we've been through, and now there is more. I hear them say. Love is the way, love is the answer, that's what they say. But we're not just dreamers, a broken down grievers. Our hand will reach us and we will see This can't control us, no it can't hold us down. We gon' pick it up even though we still struggle. Just like the waving flag. 